0: Hey, um, I want to preach this morning about uh, a title, a title of a sermon that may may be misunderstood, but I think by the end you'll see what I mean. I want to talk about how to save your soul. I want to talk about how to save your soul. This is the time of year where many people in our culture look at their lives and evaluate habits and where they're at, and they want to make uh, changes and resolutions, that's fine, it's good to have self-examination. Uh, the problem is, of course, that many of those, if not almost all of them, are really directed at our life level on a, on a bodily scale, about becoming you know, thinner, becoming more successful, uh, getting rid of some bad habits that are plaguing us and whatnot. And again, that's not bad. But I think they may blind us to our need to go a little bit deeper. They may blind us to our need not to make resolutions to lose weight or do better about saving money or whatever else, but a desire for in 2022 to be a time where we progressively save our souls. And again, that sounds odd, but we're going to explain that here in a minute. Our text this morning is going to be the same one that was read just a few minutes ago in the first chapter of the epistle, the letter of James. And you can turn there if you want. I um, believe it's also in your bulletin, we're going to have it up here on the screen. And originally I was going to preach on the whole thing, I'm going I'm to break this up into two parts, um, in order for it not to be too long, you're welcome. As, and as I was working through this, it just, it just seemed like there was one thing I really felt like I should focus on this morning, and that will come out. My brother Nate prayed so powerfully, I'm not going to repeat that. But let's just ask God right now as our own inner response to this that he would show us himself and how to respond to this as we listen to his words. I'm going to look at this first part here especially. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, let everyone everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. Therefore, putting away all filthiness and pervasive evil, moral filth, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. The implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Now, I note a couple things about this right off the bat. This is written to Christians. I mean, he starts right, right off dear brothers and sisters, and if you look at the epistle of James, it's clear he's not writing to unsafe people, saying them, receive the word of God that can save your soul in the terms of your salvation. He's writing to believers like you and I. And he's saying that there's something we can do which will save our souls. Now, what does he mean by that? Aren't our souls already saved? I mean, isn't that part of what it means to be a Christian? And of course, the answer is that the word saved and the concept there depends upon the context in which it's being used. And very often we think of salvation as the salvation Jesus gave us at the cross. Predominant use in the New Testament, but far from the only one. For example, um, remember when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus, and the storm arises out of nowhere, and Jesus is napping in in the bottom of the boat, which is a great way to follow Jesus, by the way. Take naps in the middle of the day, preferably on a moving boat. Um, Anyway, and they, they call out to him, Lord, save us. And they're using the same word in the Greek language. And, and they weren't saying, Lord, take regard to our eternal destiny. No, they're saying, hey, we're going to shipwreck and drown. Save our skins here, right? And, and so the context of the word saved, saving our souls, is going to depend upon how it's used. And James, obviously is not talking about our salvation, he's rather talking about this idea that there is a righteous life that we are saved unto. That even now, before our death and before Christ returns, is God's desire for us, and we can be saved from missing that. There is a desire that God has in saving us that we look and act like right now, that's a good and wonderful and precious treasure. And saving our soul means that we progressively realize that as our day-to-day experience. That's how I understand this after studying this passage. And I think you'll probably see that as we go through this. Now, there's another question here that <laughs> we may think through and wonder about. Alright. How um, how do we receive the word if it's already implanted within us? So we're supposed to save our souls by receiving the implanted word, but implanted I- implies the idea it's already there, right? And, and what does he mean by that? Well, again, the Bible often, pervasively actually, uses earthly metaphors for spiritual truths. And, and there's one point to this, but if you push the metaphor too far, of course you, you get confusion. Spiritual truths bear an analogy to earthly truths. For example, to say that the word brings light means something analogous to what we would say to say a flashlight or a candle brings light. It brings illumination to, to a place that would otherwise be dark. But of course, it's it's a metaphor, it's not a, a literal thing. So if you're going to go spelunking in dark caves, don't bring a pocket New Testament, bring a flashlight, all right? Uh, that's going to help you out. The The Bible is not going to bring direct or, or literal illumination, is what I mean. In the same way, the word here is described as a plant that's, that's implanted within us that we receive. And we're going to push the metaphor way too far if we're worried about how do we receive something that's already implanted? Because James is doing his best to convey a a very deep, or actually several deep spiritual truths, and he's going to use this human analogy to help us picture it. So what's he getting at here? When he talks about receiving this implanted word, why does he use this implanted word, or seed metaphor? Well, I think he wants to emphasize three things. First, this is all by grace, all right? Yes, we're going to have a response here but it's not something we earn, because the whole process, everything about it is about grace. No field plants itself. It receives the seed. It doesn't create it. And I imagine James, as guided by the Holy Spirit, is thinking of the word of the gospel planted within us at our salvation. But that word grows. It's an act of grace. We did not generate our salvation. We did not earn it by our work. It comes to us as a gift, outside of ourselves is planted within us but second this word of god that brings salvation is intended to grow within us into something more uh than than it was i'm not saying that exactly right but the idea is that it's designed to grow and transform into something beautiful within us Uh, just think of the contrast here if you uh go out and you plant a rock in your backyard and you come back 50 years later, guess what? You've got a rock still buried in your backyard, right? If you go out and you plant an acorn in your backyard and you come back 50 years later, you've got an oak tree, maybe 80 feet tall, providing shade, providing shelter and food for all kinds of, of animals and insects. And, and that's the difference. The word's implanted, It's, it, but it's implanted, it's put within us as a seed, a seed by its nature is intended to, to sprout and to grow into something. And that's why I think he, he's using this idea. And then third, third reason he's using this idea of an implanted seed is because a seed requires tending. It needs water. It needs a weeds pull. And that, I think, is key to what he has in mind when he says that we are to humbly receive the word planted within us. Yes, it's already within us. But it doesn't grow and unfold by itself like a crystal. We receive it by desiring and working for its growth within us. And and that's a beautiful thought. I said there just a moment ago that it needs water and it needs weed pulling. And uh, by watering, I, I think just the idea of taking this word again and again, watering what the gospel, spiritual truth within us by receiving God's word, and actually, I'm going to talk about that next week. That's the part where I said I was going to break it up into two sermons. Because as I was working through this and, and came to this idea of pulling weeds, there, there seemed to be a lot here that I wanted to go a little bit deeper in. So let's talk about weed pulling. A seed requires tending. It needs water. It needs the weeds pulled. A garden plant simply will not grow and thrive amidst weeds. It might survive, but it won't thrive. not be what it could be not be what it was created to be and intended to be when it was planted. Now, I actually learned this this the hard way when I first tried to garden about 17 years ago. Amy and I bought a a home a little bit south of town, and and it had two acres. So I figured, well, at least one of those acres should be devoted to a great vegetable garden, right? Um, And I was a little bit overambitious. it wasn't actually an acre, but it was a lot bigger than it should have been. Uh, because I, I, I greatly underestimated two things. One, how much my family would help me with the garden. <laughs> uh, and two, just how pervasive the weeds would be, especially in a large, newly set up garden. It was a complete failure. So this was the expectation. <laughs> And this was something like the reality right here. Now, there were things that survived. I mean, I planted corn, and, and I got corn. It got about three feet high, you know? Um, you remember when they used to have salad bars? Anybody remember that far back before COVID, you could actually go and make a salad at a bar? And they had those little tiny baby corn cobs. Yeah, those were from my garden, okay? Okay. Um, I did get some green beans, those things are are tough, but even then it got basically about a couple of handfuls. Uh, Got some cherry tomatoes. I did not plant cherry tomatoes, I planted real tomatoes (laughs) that grew to about cherry size. So it was a complete failure for one reason. The water and nutrients my plants needed were stolen away by the weeds. They got so bad that eventually, like as happens, I just kind of gave up. Like, I can't handle this. They choked out what I had planted. And I can't help to wonder if the reason I'm not producing more spiritual fruit is simply that what is planted within me has to compete with far too many weeds. That's what Jesus warned us about in the parable of the sower, right? It wasn't, there was nothing wrong with the seed But among those that didn't produce, it was one of those scenarios was there were just too many weeds that came up. That's what James is warning us about in this passage. He seems to have kind of two general ideas of, of weeds in mind. And the first is what he describes as the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. In many ways, the world around us is dirty. There's a beauty and goodness in the world, but also a pride and sexual perversion and excess, materials and profanity. And and this type of weed chokes out the word within us. Now, I could go on an easy 20-minute tirade about the evils of society. I am a preacher after all, right? But that's not what James is doing here. He's talking about our own individual response to the seed. So rather than going off on, a tangent about the evils in our society, I, I just want to encourage us to ask this question. In my own life, what are the, the things, the sins, or or things I've just accepted because they're pervasively around me and no one else really seems to think that big a deal, that are really choking out my receiving the word of God, the holy word of God? So the best way to answer this is simply to ask that question and ask God, to give you an honest answer, is that a question you want to ask God? To make it something that you ask Him again and again, especially this week, Lord, would You show me if there's anything of this kind of weed that's choking the Word within me? Now, the second weed that He's talking about—in fact, He spends more time on this—may surprise us. It's anger. It's anger. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, but slow to speak, slow to become become angry, because human anger does not bring the righteousness of God. Now, in the Greek language, it's it's just that righteousness of God, but I, I think the idea and the interpreters or the translations have different ways of bringing this about, but basically, I think this is the idea that when has planted that seed within us, like any gardener, he has in mind the crop that he wants to come out of that. That is the righteous life that God desires, and he planted that seed at such a great cost to himself within us. So he says, that human, that kind of life cannot come about by human anger. Be quick to listen to the word and to others. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become anger. You want the righteous life to thrive within you, the one that he planted? Then if so, then perhaps the top of the list when it comes to pulling weeds is going to be the weed of anger. Why? I thought about this a lot because he doesn't tell us exactly. He kind of hints at it. I put it this way. Because anger is the only weed that results from the root of pride. And nothing is more deadly to the spiritual life than pride. I'm not saying pride can't produce other ones, but I'm saying whenever you see the root, or or whenever you see the weed, or the flower, even weeds have flowers, of anger, it's almost always tied to pride. And pride is deadly to the spiritual life. Now, I'm not talking about pride as vanity here, thinking that we're better than other people, right? Um, But rather, the idea of pride, and this is a very scriptural idea, it goes much deeper than vanity, being that uh, this is a notion that we have within us, that if we stop and think about it, we think how silly and monstrous it is. Here's a notion that I, even though I didn't create myself, Even though I don't sustain my life, someone else does. Even though I'm a sinner, I still get to choose what my life is about. How it should look. How other people should treat me. What should go on in my life. That is pride. When we understand our full meaning as a creature of God. It's pride because it takes us out of our place as a creature, but also because it's telling God, basically, I know how how to run my life. And I'm going to pursue that instead of accepting what you bring to my life. Because of that, we get angry when my life doesn't, in fact, look like that. We get angry about circumstances. We get angry at people for not living up to our expectations or desires. And very often, the closer these people are to us, the more expectations and desires we have upon them for our happiness or for how we want life to be, and so the more angry we get. We get angry at God for not fixing the things we desperately want him to fix. Now, we may not want to hear this, but this is a pride issue. And we may really not want to hear this, but the way you spot a pride issue is to look for anger. You ever had a, I'm sure none of you have ever had dandelions in your, in your yard. Um, I hate dandelions. I really do. If it's just a little yellow flower, fine. But then they take over and they produce, it's just, they get very ugly, right? A lot of us hate dandelions. And you know what? You can go out with a mower and mow down those, the, the yard and the dandelions and it looks great for an hour, you know. And, and then those things, they will outgrow the grass like a 10 to 1 ratio, you know. And and Why? What, what's, what's the deal? Well, what you have to do, obviously, you can't just mow the dandelions, expect them to go away, because the dandelion is only there to show you that there is a very deep taproot. It can grow a foot or even a foot and a half. And unless you deal with that, it's just going to come back. It might take a little while, but it's going to come back. And in the same way, what I'm suggesting here, what I think James has in mind, and what I think goes along with the rest of the New Testament, is that most of our pride, or or most of our anger, I'm sorry, is showing us where the taproot of pride really lies. And when this is our mindset, that I don't really need to change, I'm okay, but I really want other people to change, so I'm going to be quick to speak to correct them, I think is what he has in mind. Um, but also I'm going to quit to become angry when things are not the way I want it to be. If if that's the mindset I have going in, I'm not really going to be receptive to receiving God's word, a word that can challenge and change me. Because I don't want myself to be changed. I want life to be changed. I want the circumstances of my life to be changed. I think this is why he ties in Humbly receiving this word with the idea of getting rid of our anger. So, how do we do that though? And let's, let's end on this idea then. All right. If you're with me at all so far and you're like, okay, I, I understand. God has planted this seed within me, He desires a certain kind of righteous life to grow out of that seed. And, and there's, there's sin habits that will choke that, but, but especially here, there's anger. And pride that are going to choke that. How do I deal with that? Um, well, maybe a couple things here. First, and I'm just going to mention this one briefly. Watch who and what you're putting into your mind. So, the book of Proverbs talks again and again about anger and how destructive it is. And it gives a warning several times to avoid hot-headed friends. Because the idea being that if you Hang around with hotheads, you're going to get pretty toasty yourself, right? Now, perhaps today it's not just friends, but, but the ideas and the personalities we receive through the media. There are people whose business model is to provoke our anger in order to engage our attention again and again. So that's all I'm going to say about that one, because I, th- I think the bigger issue here, and, and the one that may be more helpful, I- is this. Examine your anger. Examine it. Don't pretend we don't have it, but pull it out, symbolically pull it out from you like it's a tumor and examine it like a doctor would. What is this thing? Why am I angry? Is my anger right? You know, when a doctor pulls out a tumor, they don't just, oh yeah, there's a tumor. Um, They see a tumor, they're going to analyze it to figure out what's causing it and what it is. And in the same way, I, I see a pattern as God deals with angry people in the scripture that points the way towards our help. You see, the prescription is we have a pride problem and therefore an anger problem that's keeping us from receiving the word. But thankfully, the the scriptures never give us the, the diagnosis without the prescription or the way forward. So here's what I see. I see Cain, first person to get angry in the Bible, or first we're told about anyway, In Genesis chapter 4, and you remember the story? Cain and Abel, his brother, both offer sacrifices. They offer different kinds. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but Cain, he refuses. Cain gets mad. Now, I I, I assume he's really mad at God for not accepting the sacrifice, but he he can't do anything to God, so he's going to take it out on his brother. He's angry at his brother, even murderous anger, and eventually he does murder him. And and do you remember what God says to him in Genesis chapter 4 before that? before he commits that, that sin, he says, Cain, why are you angry? God knows what's in his mind. He knows how deep this anger goes and how evil it will get. But instead of condemning him or killing him, he very gently asks him this question, why are you angry? And then he goes on, Look, if you do what is right, if you offer the right kind of sacrifice, won't you be accepted? This isn't favoritism, my son. This is simply a response to what you're doing. And then he gives a warning. Sin is lurking at your door. He desires to master you, but you must master it. Why are you angry? He gives Cain the space to ask that question with him. God already knew. He was asking Cain to work through that with him. Do you remember Elijah? This is in the... uh, uh, last part of First Kings, I forget the exact chapter, but I, I really this one's forgivable because the guy is just worn out. He's just come from the, the great contest with the, the prophets of Baal. and There's been this great spiritual victory and then Jezebel says, hey, you're dead meat. I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. And she's a queen, by the way, so she's got some power. And uh, Elijah runs. He runs to the south. He runs to the place where Moses met with God and, and uh, he hides in the rock, and, and God comes to him and says, hey, what, what, why are you, what are you doing here? And he vents out these words, uh, they're, they're of despair, but of self-pity, and also a little bit of anger towards God, because things are going so sideways. He says, look, you know they, they, they killed all the prophets, and the Israelites are rebelling against you, and I'm the only one left, and they're, they're trying to kill me too. The implication is, what are you doing, God? I'm sick of it. I've had enough. God says, okay, I want you to go out and hide yourself in the rock. I think it was at the same place Moses was when Moses saw the glory of God pass in a, in a way. And God says, I'll show myself there. And it goes out and there's an earthquake and there's a fire. And God wasn't any of those. And it says God was in a still, small voice. And what did the voice say? Same question. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he gives the same answer about all this that God's not doing and how he's the only one left. God gives him direction, reminds him he's in control. It's all okay. I I remember Jonah. You remember Jonah? He goes to preach to Nineveh against his will. Why? Because Nineveh and the Assyrians are the enemies of Israel. He wants God's judgment to fall upon Nineveh and the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital at that time. And, And the Assyrians were brutal enemies of Israel, the oppressors and and against his will, he goes there and he preaches the shortest sermon on records, eight words in Hebrews, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He really put his heart into that, right? <laughs> he just shows up, announces that eight words, then he goes to the mountain to look over the city, still hoping for the Sodom and Gomorrah ending. But by God's grace, the, the people of the city repent. And it says Jonah got mad. And he's a prophet, he's a preacher, And they listen to his word and respond, and he gets mad. Now, God could have got really mad at him. But again, God comes in gentleness. I think God knows maybe he understands a lot about how we are. He also knows that if he just comes in anger against our anger, it's just going to make it worse, probably. But he comes and he offers this gentle question Jonah, are you right to be angry? Yes, I'm right. I knew you would do this. That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew you were a God that was just and would forgive if people repented, and, and that's why I didn't want to. I'm mad enough. I, I'm mad enough to, to die. Basically, it says God, just kill me. I'm that ticked off at you. And God provides a little object lesson. We won't go into it. It's in Jonah chapter four. If you want to see it, and at the end of that, God asks again, same question. Jonah, are you right to be angry? So what I'm saying is this. The pattern of God in dealing with our anger is to ask us to examine it with him, honestly. What's behind this? Let me give you an illustration of my my own life. doesn't make me look too good, but that's all right. Um, Some years ago, I was very hurt and angry by what some people uh, within the church were saying about me. Uh, There was an interpersonal conflict they had with someone else, and they did not like the way I handled this, uh, in my role as pastor and they let people know that they did not like the way I handled this and a few other things as well for good measure and, uh, and I was hurt and I was angry uh, I mean it tore me up for weeks and a couple of months and uh, finally I got to a place where I could work out with God honestly, alright why am I so upset and angry about this and here was the answer that I received as I worked through this with God. The answer was that I didn't want to just be a good pastor. I wanted to be known as a good pastor. And my reputation was taking a hit. I didn't want to just be, I wanted to be known as a good pastor. And those are not the same two things. The second arises of some unholy combination of pride and insecurity, both of which I should have brought to God, but instead I let stew within me. And it wasn't until I gave that completely to him. So, said, God, all right. I don't deserve to be a pastor here. I know that more than anybody. So let's just let whatever you want to happen here happen. And that was the only way I could find peace forward in that at all and get rid of that anger. Now, I wish I could say that's what I always do. but um, But no, this is what God invites us to. So this is, I believe, what God would say to us. Do you want this righteous life to grow within you? Do you want to save your soul in this way? I've already got the eternal security stuff taken care of. But do you want to save who you should be from being corrupted by the world and by your own anger? Do you want that righteous life that I've implanted within you to grow up and thrive like I have desired it to be in my wisdom and my love for you? If so, if so, then are we willing to ask God this week, would you show me? Would you show me if there's any sin or habit issues that are choking that? Would you show me? If my anger issues are related to some area where I'm not surrendering my life to you, but in, in my pride, I feel like, if I'm honest, I know better how my life should be than you're apparently working it out to be. And am I willing to say, God, just as Jesus showed us the meaning of true humanity by saying, not my will be done, but yours. In the very area of my life that I'm angry about, that you've convicted me of, I want to say that too. I give this to you. I trust you. You You're my Father. Jesus, you died for me. Holy Spirit, you're working in my good. I want whatever you want to happen in this area to happen. I surrender this to you. And it's when we do that that we are able then to pull those weeds of anger and pride at the root. And allow the righteous life of God implanted within us to thrive. So that's my call. All I'm asking you to do this week and all I'm asking myself is to dwell and ask Dwell with God and ask him, work through these questions with him. We're going to sing one last song here, Ancient Words. Because coming back to this idea that we want to receive this implanted word again and again this year, as we change the calendar, we're reminded that some things don't change, and especially the spiritual truth of this word that can change us and save our souls.